Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bailey and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle. Also on the show is James Carfew, Research Director at Investment Trust Research website Quoted Data. Markets have experienced considerable gyrations since the election of Donald Trump as US President and the investment trust sector has not escaped. James, you've been monitoring the movements of investment trusts' net asset value and share prices since the US presidential election. Over the uh, week after this, which investment trusts fell the most? There was a sort of pattern to it. So the um, Latin American funds were quite badly hit. They were probably the worst performers. Things like BlackRock, Latin American, JP Morgan Brazil, Aberdeen Latin American. Indian funds did quite badly. JP Morgan India, New India. General emerging market funds. Uh, like the JP Morgan Emerging Markets Fund, that's that's been hit. There's especially this gold fund called Golden Prospect, that's that's not done very well. And some Japanese funds as well, as the Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon Fund is also one of the worst performers. Okay, what what drove these falls? I mean, why did these? Because obviously they're not all you know necessarily uh, U.S. funds. Why did you know some of these? You know, perhaps get some examples. Why did some of these funds fall? Yeah, sure. I mean, the first thing, if we talk about Latin America first, I mean, the issue here is all around the whole rhetoric around Mexico and building the wall. And But generally, the, the idea is that um, Trump wants to try and repatriate jobs from places like Mexico back to the U.S. Um, by putting tariffs up and that sort of stuff. Um, and that, if he does carry out that sort of thing, that's going to hurt the Mexican economy quite badly. So there's, there's probably not a surprise from that point of view that the Latin American funds have been hit. I was a bit surprised that J.P. Morgan Brazil was lumped in with that because it's less affected than the, the, the big Latin American funds, the BlackRock and Aberdeen one. The Indian stuff actually is only tangential to what's going on in, with Trump because what's happening there at the same time is that the government's just said, we're going to get rid of all the old currency notes that are in um, circulation, replace them with new ones as a way of cracking down on corruption. So that you've had sort of piles of cash lying around. You now have to, going to have to go and bank those. That's creating a lot of um, unease in that market at the moment. Going forward, though, India is actually quite a sort of independent market. It's sort of generally just um, got businesses dealing internally in India rather than exporting. So we think that's that's very less affected by a sort of general slowdown in emerging markets. But it's that slowdown in, in imports from to America that's hurting the big emerging market funds and some Asian things as well. And then there's, there was an initial worry that what Trump was going to do was going to be quite bad for the dollar. So people panicked and ran to gold and they ran to Japan. That reversed quite quickly as people got a bit more um, sanguine about it. We're not quite sure how that's going to play out, but um, at the moment that, that's the, the situation is the gold's come off again. The yen's come off, but some of the Japanese funds ended up just being a bit cheaper than they were. Um, so the Shin Nippon Fund, very good Shin Nippon Fund, which is a small Japanese small cap, that just looks a bit more attractive. Okay, some interesting moves there. Now, there were also some moves um, upwards. So I wondered which um, investment trusts experienced the largest rises in net asset asset value and share price in the week after the election? Sure. Uh, Again, there's some patterns there. So um, biotech funds like Biotech Growth, International Biotechnology, um, funds that have got quite a lot invested in that area, like Woodford Patient Capital, uh, British American, they all went up quite a lot. Um, the U.S. small cap funds did quite well. So Jupiter U.S. Smallers, J.P. Morgan U.S. Smallers, Gabelli Value Plus, they all invest in that sort of area. Um, so they all feature in the highest risers. Uh, there's a couple of stock-specific ones as well. There's Dolphin Capital, that's up like about 20% or something. 
but, but generally it's, it's biotech and US small cap is the, the main area. Okay, and um, why are biotech and US smaller companies' funds experiencing increases? There was, ahead of the election, quite a lot of scandals in the States. Uh, the most recent one about EpiPen, where drug companies and pharmaceutical companies that owned um, therapies that were quite sort of old and well-established and that people were sort of had to use were jacking up the prices. And this kind of price gouging thing, she came out and said, well, when I get in, I'm going to have a big review and we're going to crack down on drug pricing. So there's a bit of a relief rally going on in that sector. Uh, because they think that's not going to happen anymore. We'll see. We'll wait and see about that because, to my mind, if another big scandal like that came along, because Trump's quite a sort of populist politician, I wouldn't, I'd be surprised if he didn't get way in and, and and get involved in that and actually do something quite similar. It's something we'll just have to wait and watch and see. Okay, so maybe people... Relief rally going on. Yeah, exercise a bit of caution over biotech funds. And The US small cap stuff is because um, he's going to cut corporation tax rates and he's going to have, sort of have a sort of bonfire of regulations and things, and, and people think that's going to be good for sort of U.S. corporates generally. The, the caution on that angle is um, if you start some kind of a trade war with China or something like that, that could be quite bad news for U.S. economy generally, um, and then that, that might unravel. So we'll wait and see. Okay. You were t- when we were talking about the fallers, you, you did indicate that um, you know maybe some of them were on attractive discounts. I mean, um, which in particular... Uh, of these trusts, do you think look good value, and um, you know what would be the reasons behind that? Well, the Indian ones I've suggested already. So, um, J.P. Morgan India, New India, India Capital Growth Fund, which is a more of a small cap thing. Um, I think what what's happening to them is is a sort of like a temporary blip, while while people get their heads around um, what's going on with it, with this exchanging of the currency. That's one of the areas that's going to grow fastest in next year and the year after. And the, the government's done a pretty good job of, of changing regulations and stuff there to get things um, a bit more sort of business friendly. So one of the things they did most recently was introduce kind of VAT, and that people think that's going to be actually quite good news for the economy because it gets rid of a whole load of regional taxes, makes the whole thing much simpler. So, so Indian stuff we like quite a lot. It's worth keeping an eye on the Japanese things, although I'm, I'm still not sure there about the strength of the yen and whether you want to keep an eye on that. If you can hedge the yen, maybe. Maybe that's just something to think about. But yeah, they're, they're sort of the main things, I think. Yeah. You mentioned, obviously, when we were talking about the risers, you um, you mentioned a few provisos. So what I wondered was, do you think that among these risers that anything looks a bit expensive? I think it really depends on what actually happens. I mean, part of the, the, the trouble we've got at the moment is the, um, that Trump's got a kind of reputation of saying things and then contradicting himself a few weeks later and <laughs> denying he ever said it. So until we actually see the policy start to unfold and, and the impact of them, it's quite hard to know which way to jump. So I, I would just um, urge caution, I think, but rather than singling out anything that I think is particularly expensive. Okay. I suppose on that note, um, looking ahead to what extent one can do, um, what sectors and trusts do you expect to do well, let's say, over the next six to 12 months? I think people are still going to be looking um, for ways of getting decent levels of income and definitely income that isn't really correlated with the stock market. So we've seen a massive boom in some companies' industry over the last couple of years in debt funds, property funds, infrastructure, renewable infrastructure, leasing, all sorts of weird and wonderful things. They're, they're all funds that are designed to generate yields of um, 5 6 7%. 
um, without go, their assets going up and down when stock markets go up and down. Um, that, I think, is still going to carry on being popular for a while. Because even though it's possible that we won't see um, a slight tick up in US interest rates now, um, post the election, we're, we're going to see on that. Again, it's, it's, they're, they're, I think the Fed are watching to see what markets are doing, and probably because markets have been fairly bullish on the back of this, they'll be ready to raise, put, the, put the interest rates up a bit. But it's only a bit. So interest rates aren't soaring away. So for the moment, you, you can't get a decent income from putting money in the bank. So you, you're going to be looking for other things. And then apart from that, because you're not sure about growth, you probably want to look for companies that uh, can grow despite what's going on in the world. So that's the sort of tech and biotech areas. And obviously the biotech's done very well. and has had very long rallies and it's jumped up now. But that, you know, that could carry on going despite, you know, what I said earlier about what Trump might do. And tech, we think, is an, an interesting area. So um, that's um, been a thing that we've been writing about quite a lot recently um, in all sorts of scenarios. Um, things like Herald Investment Trust, which is small cap UK tech, and um, there's the big global funds, Polar and Allianz Technology. And then even funds like Pacific Horizon, which is um, an Asian fund. He's got more than half his fund in, in tech stocks because he's excited about the, the uh, outlook for that area. Interesting, yeah. On the flip side um, of any sectors and trusts you anticipate might experience volatility over the next year, yeah, well, that's going to be the same stuff that's really sort of um, around Brexit and that sort of thing. We, we had all the U.S. small caps, mid cap, some of the European funds. Um, as we are going to work our way through um, the the process of, of Brexit, that's going to be quite volatile. And then it, then it, it is just a question of then what, what pronouncements Trump makes. Um, so I would expect things like the emerging markets to, to zoom up and down. Okay. What he says. Yeah. Thank you, James. Some very interesting observations and things to look out for. The assorted problems banks have faced since the financial crisis have been well documented, but more recently, some concerns over a particular bank are worrying fund investors, even though their funds do not necessarily invest in this bank's shares. Kate, you've been looking at this. Which is the bank in question and why is it worrying fund investors? So the bank is Deutsche Bank and it's worrying investors uh, because it's facing this $14 billion fine for the mis-selling of mortgage-backed securities before the financial crisis. should be said that they, they're contesting this fine um, and, and kind of wanting to not pay it. But anyway, the issue is that Deutsche Bank acts as counterparty to its synthetically um, or indi- indirectly replicating ETFs, exchange-traded funds. So these are ETFs which don't physically hold the assets in the index they track. Instead, they pay a counterparty, so in this case Deutsche Bank, to give them the return of a certain index. And instead, they hold a substitute basket of assets or hold collateral. OK. How many DBX trackers ETFs using Deutsche Bank as swap counterparty are listed in London? And what are examples of some of these? It has 58 synthetically uh, replicating ETFs on the London Stock Exchange. Some of them are DBX trackers, Barclays Global Aggregate Bond, uh, DBX trackers, CSI 300, and DBX trackers, MSCI Emerging Markets Asia. Okay. So should investors holding um, DBX trackers, synthetic ETFs, be worried? Um, Well, in a word, no. Um, And I guess for a few reasons. So firstly... There is no actual reason to be that concerned about um, Deutsche Bank's fine. 
you know, we don't know what impact that will have on the bank, but there is no reason to fundamentally think that they will default on their counterparty agreements. But mainly because these ETFs hold collateral or they hold a substitute basket of assets, which are worth more than the net asset value of the ETF. So basically, in simple terms, even if Deutsche Bank did collapse and default, um, which hopefully is unlikely, then the ETF would be able to sell its basket of stocks or sell the collateral it holds and still pay back investors. Okay, so if an ETF is 100% or more than 100% um, collateralised, does this mean there's nothing to worry about? Well, no. I mean, it's always important that you actually understand what's, you know, the underlying dynamics of your ETF. And actually, one thing to bear in mind is that the basket of assets you hold with a synthetic ETF, um, even if it's held kind of via third party will look very different to the basket of assets that you're tracking so that is one thing to kind of be aware of there's a good reason for that um the reason is liquidity so for example if you hold um a synthetic etf in a very niche area that etf will hold a substitute basket of assets which are very easy to buy and sell and the purpose is that if something did happen it would be much easier to to sell uh you know a large cap German or US share or equity than it would to sell your very niche um, the stock that you hold uh, but it then is worth bearing in mind that you know in a crisis if the worst did happen that basket of stocks you hold is likely to form quite differently to the assets that you're tracking so it's more it's something to bear in mind and you really do need to understand what it is that you're holding. Okay I mean that's rather concerning and maybe something that um, you wouldn't expect um, should you avoid some fetish ETFs? No, not at all. Um, if you understand them, there are, you know, they can be very useful, and there are really good reasons for holding them. I mean, in some cases, you actually can't have physical ETFs tracking certain things, commodities, for example, um, things like oil, where it would be impossible to take hold of the massive quantity of oil that you would need to you have to track you have to use futures contracts basically to to do that so that's one good reason and in these very niche markets which you might want to gain access to in fact it would your etf would have a very very poor tracking if you were trying to do that physically and it is in fact better to use a synthetic etf um, because you don't have to worry about buying and selling those illiquid assets because in fact you're just paying a counterparty to give you the return of the index. So no, there are definitely good reasons to hold them um, as long as you just understand what you are holding. Okay, so to understand the ETF, what do you need to check before you invest in one? So I think the first thing to check is um, what the agreement is. Um, it sounds complicated, but there are two versions of synthetic ETFs. You can have an unfunded or fully funded Um Unfunded synthetic ETFs, they hold a substitute basket of assets, so they actually hold assets. Um, fully funded post-collateral to a third party, so that's the first thing to have a look at. Um, second thing, what is the counterparty agreement? Is it a single counterparty, so in the case of DBX trackers, um, or is it multi-counterparty where you are spreading that risk? And it should be said that DBX trackers um, are moving to this multi-counterparty model because it's obviously seen as a little bit safer just to spread that risk there. And then after that, check uh, what level of collateral you, you have. Is it over-collateralised? And if so, by how much? You want the more, the better, obviously. Um, and then thirdly, just check what that basket is that you're actually holding. Are you satisfied that those assets are really liquid if something goes wrong? And how comfortable do you feel about holding those? 
Okay. Now, we've been talking about DBX trackers, ETFs, but there are other providers offering ETFs. So I wondered um, what kind of counterparty arrangements do they have? Well, it's, it's all very similar. I mean, people are moving more and more towards the, the kind of multi-counterparty model. Um, but you can find synthetic ETFs across wide range of providers. So Lixor have some, Source have some. Um, Lixor have many where Societe Generale is the, is the single counterparty. Um, but yeah, it really ranges. But Deutsche Banks are, you know, they are typ- they're typical of most arrangements. Okay, thanks, Kate. That's really helpful. Now, when you're choosing funds, no doubt you scrutinise the performance records very carefully. But as performance comes down to the manager, if they haven't run the fund for a very long time, these figures won't really tell you anything about it going forward. However, a recently published study of equity funds by wealth manager Tilney Best Invest is looking to address this by studying the record of fund managers rather than funds. Emma, you've been looking at this, so what exactly does the study look at? So the study looks at the career track record of about 500 managers who've been working in a specific sector for at least five years. And um, it sort of tries to rank them on the ability of of the managers to provide value and consistency. And as you say, you know, this is this is useful because actually funds tend to just analyse the performance of a fund, usually for a track record of about five years. Um, and if the manager has changed within that time, you don't actually get an accurate um, picture of of how they've how the managers you know the contribution that they've made. So this use this research is useful. Okay, um, so which fund managers came out top in the survey? Neil Woodford, who's obviously very well known um, as a star fund manager, topped the table. So he has delivered an average monthly outperformance of 0.3% over his whole career and also during the past five years. And he manages CF Woodford Equity Income Fund. Um, Martin Chorwill, who manages Royal London UK Equity Income Fund, came second. He generated an average monthly outperformance of 0.21% during his full career. And third were the managers of Lion Trust Special Situations Fund, Anthony Cross and Julian Foch, who took third place um, with, an, with a monthly outperformance of 0.51% during the time they've been managing funds together. Okay, now, um, you know, these are interesting uh, rankings and uh, you you were talking about um, a number being assigned to them. So how does Tilney Best Invest get there? How do they determine which managers are top and get these scores? So, I mean, what they did was they looked at the average monthly excess performance that these managers had delivered um, above their market benchmark over the whole of their career. In the, in the sector, I should you know that needs to be specific in the in the particular equity sector they're looking at, and also during the past five years, and to measure the consistency of outperformance, they also looked at um, the percentage of months that the manager had delivered performance ahead of a benchmark. So how often they were beating the benchmark on the, a month to month basis, and yeah, so that that was the main. Um, criteria that the this research used. Okay, that's some pretty comprehensive um, and uh, fairly in-depth way to look at a manager. But should you only look at the manager and its record when choosing a fund? Or what other factors should you take into consideration when you decide uh, which fund you're going to invest in? Um, no, you, sh- you should definitely look at other factors. I mean, the research... Um, 
said that, you know, fund manager performance is just one area. I mean, cost is another really important factor. So for this survey, they stripped out the impact of the fund costs to be able to compare um, the manager's individual track record and make it um, easier to see how individual managers did. But in real world, you, you are going to need to look at the um, the cost of a fund because that can really eat into the return that you're going to receive. So even if the manager's you know performing very well, if they've got a very high cost, uh, maybe there's performance fee in the fund that could you know sort of really um, deplete the the returns that you're going to get as, a, as an investor. Okay, and um, other than these um, figures, um, are there any other things that investors should take into consideration? I mean, the main thing really is to to look at the fund manager and um, whether they're in a similar position to be able to continue their winning ways. So um, I think you should be cautious if they've, if they've changed their sector or the remit of what, of what they um, have previously managed very well. Um, even if they've, they've moved provide to a different fund house, um, if they're moving, working in a very different environment, perhaps they're managing a lot more money, money than they have done previously, or they're in a much smaller team, all of these can have an impact on their performance going forward. Okay, thank you, Emma. Some really helpful tips there. And you can see the full list of top performing managers on the Investors Chronicle website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk. That brings us to the end of this week's show. So it just remains to thank Kate Beale and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and James Carfew, Research Director at Quoted Data. You can read more on choosing top equity managers and synthetic ETFs in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.